Well, good morning, Westridge. Glad you're here today, whether you're uh, here in person or joining online. Really glad you're here. So uh, before we uh, dig in too deep today, I just want to stop. I'm pretty sure that every one of you is aware of what's happened in our country Friday night into Saturday. Uh, the devastation of tornadoes impacting five different states, countless number of people lost their lives, and uh, the property damage, I'm sure, is still completely unknown. But uh, that's definitely the kind of moment when people are needing God, and uh, God will and can step in, probably especially through His people. So I'd like to ask you, if you would, just to stop right now with me and take a few minutes and uh, pray for those people and what's happening with so many different lives. Let's pray together. God, we come to you very humbly recognizing your great power. We know that in moments like this, when people's lives are devastated, and their property's gone, and when there's a feeling of hopelessness, God, you're the one that can step in and bring renewal and hope and change. God, we also know that it's your plan and your design for your people, the church, to step up and to be engaged and to sacrifice and do whatever it takes to make a difference in the world for those around us who are hurting. God, I pray that for us, even as this congregation here, you'll show us how and when we can step in and make a difference and help those who have lost so much. I thank you for being the God that you are, for coming into our life and bringing us hope. All these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I was tracking the news uh, this weekend, one thing that was infinitely less significant was uh, I saw a news article about Charles Barkley, basketball great Charles Barkley, who was telling the story on how he named his daughter, or should I say how he found the name of his daughter. And that is when he was still with the Sixers way back when, he would drive back and forth by this mall in Delaware, and the name of the mall was Christiana Mall, so that's where his daughter uh, got her name. Now, as amusing as it is to me to think that Charles Barkley chose the name of a mall to name his daughter, as I was honestly thinking back about choosing the names of my kids, probably not a whole lot different, because for the most part, I mean, some of us choose based on family name, but a lot of us, let's be honest, what we do is we just, well, that, that sounds good. I like the sound of that name. The right number of syllables ends with a vowel, flows with the last name. Let's choose that. And maybe, maybe if you get really, really diligent, you might later on go and look at one of those books and see what the name means. So as we're going into this series, What's in a Name?, we're talking about the names of Jesus, which are significantly different many times than the way we name people, because many of the names of Jesus were things that were given, assigned, told about him maybe centuries before he was even born. There was a prophetic nature about these names because they were describing who Jesus was going to be and what he was going to do. And so there's significance. It wasn't an afterthought. So today, Lamb of God. It might sound like a very strange, strange name to us. 
As a matter of fact, the first time that Jesus was called Lamb of God was when John the Baptist was announcing to the world that this Jesus, God from heaven, had come down, and he was teaching to this crowd, and as he sees Jesus in the distance, he points to him and he says, there is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So again, might sound like a very strange name, and I'm guessing it probably sounded a little cryptic even to people in those days, but probably just as much or more so today. But here's the thing. Understanding who Jesus is makes all the difference in what happens to us forever. So you don't have to read too far into the Bible to see there's a lot of talk about sheep and shepherds and sacrifices. Have you ever, ever done one of those Bible readings where you start in the Old Testament and you start going into Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus, all kinds of like real detailed information about sheep. And you might even be wondering like, what's the big deal with sheep here in the Bible? Like, what, what is it? So to really put that together and understand why Jesus is called the Lamb of God, it's we're going to go back to the very, the beginning, beginning, just for a moment to Adam and Eve and to remind ourselves that when Adam and Eve were created, God put them in this incredible paradise. I mean, it was, it was beautiful and perfect in every way. And he said, I'm only going to give you one thing, one guideline, one rule, one law that I want you to observe. And that is this one tree that is in the middle of the garden is not one that you can eat from. Everything else is yours. Help yourself, enjoy it to the fullest, but do not eat from this one tree. Somehow Adam and Eve are tempted and eat from this tree, but the, he says, do not, and if you do, you will die. In that moment, God sort of establishes for people this idea that there is one payment for sin, for violating what God has said, and that's death. I was, was showing this sense of justice that that's the payment. And instead of setting up a system where God zaps every person with death the moment they do something wrong, God has a plan to redeem us knowing we'd all make those same mistakes. So what does God do? He sets up this sacrificial system where in essence, there was a sheep most times. Other animals were used, but many times it was a sheep that was offered on a sacrifice essentially as a symbolic payment that would take away the sin that you had committed. Now, of course, it didn't really, really do that, but it was a symbolic act to help us recognize as humans, there is a consequence to sin and the payment is death. And also to help us understand that it's not something that we get to remedy on our own. We can't go back and erase our history, go back and do something over. So it's not something we can manage. And God was painting this picture that in his sacrificial system, he wanted us to see how life works. 
So as time went on, this kind of became more formalized. And when we get to the time when we've got a tabernacle and a temple, these places of worship, people would bring a sheep or a goat or some kind of cow, and they would offer it as a sacrifice when they'd sinned. But there was something that was set up in the temple each day of worship. There was a beginning and an ending. There was a beginning sacrifice and an ending sacrifice. And if you go back into Exodus chapter 29, verses 38 and 39, you can see the command that God gave the Jewish people that established this practice. Here's what he says. He says, These are the sacrifices you are to offer regularly on the altar. Each day, offer two lambs that are a year old, one in the morning and one in the evening. And so the Jewish people established the practice of a 9 a.m. sacrifice and a 3 p.m. sacrifice, and that was the bookend of the entire day of Jewish worship. Nothing happened before that first sacrifice. Nothing happened after the last sacrifice. It was kind of the beginning of the end of people coming to God. Why is it that God would establish this kind of ritual killing of animals on a daily basis? I think it was because he knew what it would be like for those people to carry the guilt and the shame and the embarrassment and the humiliation of knowing there was a past in many of their lives that they wouldn't be able to let go of. And they would many times live with this feeling that they could never be good enough to be accepted by the God who had created them. They would have this overwhelming feeling that that everything in their past would haunt them forever. And God, I think, was trying to show them in a very practical, real-world way that he brought a remedy and that he was going to manage the process of taking away all that stuff that they lived with. So this practice of offering sheep continued all the way up until the time when Jesus comes. So you don't have to like do too much math to figure out two sheep a day every single day of the year. That's a lot of sheep. And this whole process of these sheep that were offered in the temple were different than other sheep. I mean, people could raise sheep and eat them and sell them and make clothes with them and all these different things. But these, these were different sheep. These were what were called the tamid sheep. And the shepherds who watched over them and helped them in this process were called the Tamid shepherds. And it was unique. There was something different about them. And this whole thing was set up so that these sheep had easy access to the temple. So the temple in Jerusalem had this pasture land around it, which was perfect for grazing sheep and raising sheep. And right in the middle of this pasture land was this little town called Bethlehem. So all of the sheep that were raised were raised right here. And 
the, not only for easy access, but it was, it was the designated spot. It had actually been predicted that this would be the place. But keep in mind one, one thing. These sheep, as I said, they weren't like your other sheep who might have been raised for other purposes. These sheep were literally born to die. There was only one purpose, and that is they were born for the temple sacrifice. So birthing and raising these sheep was different in this respect. The sheep that you would put on the altar to give as a sacrifice to God had to be perfect. So in other words, no mark, no blemish, no broken bones, nothing that would, no kind of injury whatsoever. So these shepherds, as they were trying to protect these lambs, they had to go above and beyond. And near Bethlehem, there was a tower called the Tower of Migdal Eater. And the shepherds could go up there and they could look out over the land and the pasture lands and they could see whether or not there was a danger or predator that was coming that would endanger their lambs. But at the bottom of this tower was something very different. It was a birthing room for lambs. So literally, when, when the sheep were ready to deliver, they would bring these lambs in, or these sheep in to deliver them inside this birthing room. And there was a special process that was needed to make sure that these lambs remained perfect, unblemished, unmarked, no broken bones. So when the lambs were born, these shepherds would wrap them in strips of cloth they did a couple of things. One is it actually tied their legs together that kept them from running around, but it also protected them so something didn't hit against them and bruise them or injure them in some way. So after these sheep were wrapped in these cloths, then they would put them in a manger, which is really an animal feeding trough, and again, to separate them and to protect them. This was the process that was done because these sheep were different. They were unique. It wasn't the case with all sheep, but with these sheep, that's how it was done. So keep in mind, when God established this whole idea of the sacrificial system, there was sort of a time stamp on it. And the writer of Hebrews, to me, I think, sort of encapsulates and helps us to see exactly what it means that this idea of the sacrifices would end at some point. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 and 2, here's what it says. The old system, now they're talking about the system of sacrifices, the old system under the law of Moses was only a shadow, a dim preview of the good things to come, not the good things themselves. The sacrifices under that system were repeated again and again, year after year, but they were never able to provide the perfect cleansing for those who came to worship. If they could have provided perfect cleansing, the sacrifices would have stopped for the worshipers would have been purified once for all time and their feelings of guilt would have disappeared. Everything was pointing to the fact that there was going to be a different kind of sacrifice that was coming that was not a sheep which brings us to the moment when we talk about Jesus as the Lamb of God, born, this, this time of the year that we celebrate, born for a special purpose. 
Now, almost everybody seems to, I think, know this story of the birth of Jesus because even if we're not regular churchgoers, we come at this time of the year and we know this story that Mary and Joseph go on this journey. They have to go from where they live, this little city of Bethlehem, and they're going to go and register and pay a tax. And they're going to go through this entire process of doing something that the government has demanded. And on the way, God's going to do something miraculous. So we're going to pick up the story here in Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 6. Here's what it says. And while they were there, this is Mary and Joseph in Bethlehem, the time came for her baby to be born. She gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him snugly in strips of cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no lodging available for them. That night there were shepherds staying in the fields nearby, guarding their flocks of sheep. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared among them, and the radiance of the Lord's glory surrounded them. They were terrified, but the angels reassured them, "'Don't be afraid,' he said." I bring you good news that will be of great joy to all people. The Savior, yes, the Messiah, the Lord has been born today in Bethlehem, the city of David, and you will recognize him by this sign. You will find a baby wrapped snugly in strips of cloth lying in a manger. Suddenly, the angel was joined by a vast host of others, the armies of heaven, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and peace on earth to those with whom God is pleased. When the angels had returned to heaven, the shepherds said to each other, let's go to Bethlehem. Let's see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. They hurried to the village and found Mary and Joseph. And there, there was the baby lying in a manger. So, What I want to point out about this story is Luke is one of the writers who's telling the story. He has a written account in the Bible of the account of Jesus, God himself, coming down to earth in human form. He's one of four writers who tell us this story, and he's essentially putting all of the birth story into just 20 small verses. But here's the thing. If you're writing about the birth of the most important person who's ever going to be born on the planet, and you're going to try to squeeze all of that in to 20 verses, I'm sure you would think that every word matters, every word counts. Three different times in this story, Luke says, this baby is going to be wrapped in strips of cloth, and you're going to find this baby laying in a manger. As a matter of fact, in Luke 2.12, that's what the angels say. This is how you will recognize him because this wasn't what happened to every baby who was born. This was an unusual scenario, and you will know this is the one when you see that. God was painting this really clear picture that Jesus is the lamb. I mean, he was born where the sacrificial lambs are born. He was wrapped in these... Swaddling clothes, we say many times. He was put into a manger. Everything is pointing to the fact that this is a real sacrifice, not just the image, but the real deal. In the book of 1 Peter, 
he kind of clarifies this by actually saying this, that's exactly what Jesus came for and what he did. It says in, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, for you know that God paid a ransom to save you from the empty life you inherited from your ancestors. And it was not paid with mere gold or silver, which lose their value. It was the precious blood of Christ, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. So let me ask you, so what if Jesus is the Lamb of God and all that that may mean? What does that really mean for me and you right here, right now, in real life, in real time? What does that really mean? I think in some ways we could go back to what God was doing with sacrifices and the way we describe those Jewish people There are people right here, you and people around you, who may have this sense that, you know what, I've got a past that I just can't get away from. It's always there haunting me. I feel as if I'm never good enough and I'm never going to be good enough. That's why we have a lamb because that's what God is offering is that we get to take all that junk, all those poor choices and things that we wish we'd never done, the things that make us feel inadequate, that make us feel unworthy and insignificant. He takes all that stuff and he essentially just destroys it and he gives us a life of freedom. So if you've ever thought about what it would be like if all that stuff that we carry, that the guilt and the remorse and the shame that sometimes just takes up way too much space in our head. If you've ever wondered what it would be like to just unload all that stuff, that's the story of the Lamb of God. That's what Jesus does. That's why he came. That's why we celebrate Christmas. I don't want to be too simplistic here, but I do want to say this. I feel like that description does describe some of us, but there there are at least two different groups of people. I mean, people are complicated, and we're all over the spectrum, I know. But besides those people who might feel overwhelmed, there's also a group of people who don't really feel that. As a matter of fact, they might really feel like, I don't really know that I need a lamb feel like things are going pretty good in my life. I'm a kid who grew up in the church, and this is my temptation to think, yeah, I kind of got this. I'm doing okay. I'm not sure I need him. It's not because I don't believe in Jesus. I don't believe that he died on a cross and all that is important. It's just sometimes it just stops impacting my daily life and how I live it and how I see God. You see, being busy and distracted, somehow just kind of moves my attention into things that are insignificant. And I just sort of think I got everything taken care of on my own. Even rationalizing and thinking, you know what? Like, I'm a lot better than a lot of other people I know. You ever thought that? Here's the the thing. That's probably 
the biggest danger for us as people is when we're convinced that we don't need God. The words that were the harshest words of rebuke that Jesus gave to any group of people was to that group. The people who thought, we're okay. I would say the bottom line is this. The truth is, the truth is every single one of us needs the Lamb of God. It doesn't matter where we've been on our journey. It doesn't matter whether or not we think we need Jesus or we don't. We literally all do have this stuff. We've all made those mistakes. We've got stuff that we either want to or should unload. And that all happens through Jesus, the Lamb of God. Here's the challenge I want to leave you with today. I want you to consider where you really are with Jesus and understanding your relationship with him. I want you to think about whether or not you put your trust in him that everything you've done is going to be paid by him or you're going to say, God, I'm going to manage this on my own. And my challenge to you is this. There's a connection card in your seat or on the table by you. And if you're really kind of unsure about where you are in that relationship, I'd like for you to write your name on that card and just check, I'd like to talk to someone about my relationship with Jesus. Not for any arm twisting, but I want you to know you're invited into a conversation. So take the courage to step into it. And the people that you're going to be talking to, any of the leaders around here, we don't come to tell you, oh, by the way, you know, here's how it is. We come to you as people who have blown it just as many or more times than you have. And saying, but, but we found the way. We found something that we hope in, and it's Jesus, the Lamb of God. Because what you choose about him matters more than any other choice that you're going to make in your life.